0: That's nOom.com to sign up for your trial today.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Season 2 of Long Ball Legacies. The podcast where we dive into the myths, the legends of baseball, and the players who made us fall in love with the sport and tell the story of this beautiful, beautiful game. That's right. We're back. I'm your host, Daniel Port. So thank you for joining me. I apologize for the abrupt way that last season ended. Basically, I got pulled over to help with the first pitch podcast, and trying to put out three podcast episodes a week really started to take a toll on my mental health and my sleep. And I just couldn't keep it up. And I do apologize for not being better communicating what was going on in the podcast. but and we're right to kick off season two here. To start things off, the season will likely be every other week coming out on Saturday mornings, so keep an eye out for that. We're hoping this season to not just explore some of my colleagues' and peers' favorite players that got them to love the game, but we're also going to try and dive into some of the bigger names. Talk about Ruth, talk about Mantle, talk about Clement. Just really dive into some of the players that define the game as well. So keep an eye out for that. It's going to be a really fun season All right, so with all of that out of the way, I want to jump into our topic for today. I'll be running solo here, but I wanted to address a fan request that a friend of mine has been bugging me to do for about 18 episodes now, and I thought now is the perfect time to kick off season two here by acquiescing to that request. Today we're going to talk about two catchers who seemingly are linked for their entire careers. It's hard to talk about one of them without the other. They were on rival teams against each other, and it feels like their careers were spent butting heads against each other. If you've guessed it already, we're going to spend this episode talking about Jason Veritek and Jorge Posada. It genuinely is hard to contextualize either of these players' careers really without looking at them against each other. They were very different players, both in their personality and their gameplay style, and everything from their builds to how their teams were structured and their leadership styles and all these different things, yet it's really just impossible, it feels like, to look at these two players without comparing them to the other one. So we're going to start here with Veritech in honor of my friend who requested that I talk about Veritech. And is such a fascinating player to talk about. I feel like... You'll often hear me if you follow me on Twitter or if you listen to me talk a lot of times about baseball, I get very frustrated when people say something like, oh, we don't have a stat that measures that or we don't have a thing that measures how much this player contributed or what they really meant. And 99% of the time, I'm right when I say that someone's talking about, oh, you can't measure hustle. And you can. We have lots of stats to do that. Or oh, we can't really measure baseball IQ. and oh, We absolutely can. Once again, we have lots of stats for that. Veritek might be the the exception. He had a lot of great years as a hitter and as a catcher and was a part of a lot of really good teams in Boston. He caught four different no-hitters over his career. He had innumerable impact on the teams he played for who would have run through a wall at a moment's notice for Veritek. It's just I feel like we really have to talk a little more in hyperbole than we usually do when talking about Veritek. That's just how big of an impact he had without it appearing on the stats. sheet. So we'll kick off things by looking at his career and going through year by year like we always do, but I just want to keep that in mind, that his contributions aren't fully captured in the numbers and some of the things that we'll talk about. He played for 15 seasons, all of them with the Red Sox. He caught for seven playoff teams over his career. He's caught more games than any catcher in Red Sox history. He was a three-time All-Star. He won one gold glove. Over his career, he accumulated 24.2 war. He's 15th all-time in put-outs by catcher. He has a career double-digit walk rate. And while we'll talk later on about consistent excellence over a period of time when we look at Posada as a hitter, Veritek had a stretch of time where he was literally one of the best hitting catchers in the league and was up there in all time numbers for catchers, but it was more of a short flash of greatness. Now, it's interesting in the way that when we talk about Veritek as a defender, before we kind of jump into the year the year stuff and his background and whatnot... I think history has started to shine more fairly on Veritek as a catcher. Uh, He was not considered a fantastic defensive catcher at the time, but the more and more we have looked at, the more and more we have dug into this, we found that Veritek actually contributed to the game in a way that didn't involve throwing out base runners or catching pop-ups or doing all those things that Veritek certainly wasn't elite at. But when you look at... So the numbers surrounding him, I mentioned that he's caught four different no-hitters over his career. For the time that he was the main catcher, Red Sox pitchers were the 10th best pitching staff in baseball by ERA. They were 5th in strikeouts and they were 3rd in war. And you combine that with the no-hitters and it's clear that Veritek, if nothing else, was a master game caller. And helped guide pitchers in a way that few catchers do. And the really great ones are elite at. Then you also look at when Veritek was playing... We didn't really appreciate framing pitches the way that we do now. And while he wasn't considered like an elite pitch framer, especially on the edge of the zone, he was considered above average at it and was much, much better at it than we imagined that he was. But mostly he was a really great physical catcher. He was really great at blocking pitches in the dirt and keeping pitches in front of him and preventing runners from advancing and all of those sort of things. There was a really great study done by Max Marchi at Baseball Prospectus a few years back. It was on this concept he had called Catcher Value Created. And essentially, he assigned a runs-prevented statistic for catchers and for all the different aspects of catching. And if you look from 2008 to 2011, Veritek was fifth amongst all catchers by those rankings. So you're talking about a guy who maybe wasn't elite at any one thing as a catcher but did so many things across the board and was an elite game caller. So I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap as a defensive catcher, and th- that's important, especially as we talk about Posada and the comparisons between the two. Now, Veritek is got an interesting background because baseball was always a big part of his life. He played, actually, in the Little League World Series, and he's only one of three players who played in the Little League World Series, the College World Series, and the Major League World Series. So he has played if you want to think about it, on the big stage at really all the age levels that he could. He went to college at Georgia Tech. He was named College Baseball Player of the Year by Baseball America in 1994. He won the Dick Hauser Trophy for National College Player of the Year in 1994 as well. And to this day, he is the only Georgia Tech player that has ever had his number retired. In addition, he participated in the Cape Cod League in 1991 and 1993. If you want to know a little more about the Cape Cod League, go back and l- listen to my episode from Season 1 that I did with Pete Ball. Talking about Evan Longoria as he filled me in on what the Cape Cod League was and how, because he went to it a lot when he was a child, it's a really fascinating thing. Go listen to that episode, he really gets into good detail about what it is and how it works if you're not familiar with the Cape Cod League. But Veritek played in that in 1991 and 1993. He won the batting title and MVP of the Cape Cod League in 1993. He hit 371 that year. He was inducted into the Cape Cod Baseball League Hall of Fame in 2002. So, Veritek has found, has found success basically at every level of his playing career from the time he was a child on into the minors. He ends up representing the Team USA on the national team in the 1992 Olympics and ends up getting drafted by the Twins 21st overall in 1993. He does choose to return to college, though, and he gets drafted again in 1994 with the 14th overall pick by the Mariners. At this point, his agent, Scott Boris, we're all familiar with that name, encouraged Veritek to challenge the amateur draft system. Essentially, Boris felt that it wasn't fair to get stuck on a team that you didn't want to play for or that wasn't going to pay you enough, which the Mariners were trying to lowball Veritek, basically what Boris had him do was sign with an independent North League team called the St. Paul Saints. And what Boris claimed then, once Veritek had signed with the Saints, the Mariners no longer had had any rights to that player because he was not an amateur baseball player anymore. He was a professional baseball player. And so he felt that he was not subject to the rules of the amateur draft anymore and could sign wherever he wanted and for whatever amount of money he wanted. Major League Baseball claims that Rule 4 applied in this situation, which would have kept Veritek subject to the rules of the amateur draft. But Boris continued to argue that Veritech was, again, now a professional baseball player, and so none of those rules applied. This became a bit of a, a sticking point over time, but really Veritech wanted essentially $850,000 from the Mariners to sign with them after being drafted. And the Mariners were only offering about $425,000. They end up finding a middle ground for $650,000, and Vertec does end up signing with the Mariners getting drafted with them and then entering their minor league system. Now, it's worth remembering at this time before you wonder how uh, a rookie is trying to have this kind of power, how he's not even played a a drop of pro baseball, and he's already trying to leverage this sort of power over the team that's signing him. It's worth remembering at this time that Baseball America rated Vertec as the greatest catcher in college baseball history coming into this draft. Now, this slows everything down uh, for Veritek as he doesn't end up now making his minor league debut until 1997. During that same year, he is traded along with Derek Lowe to the Red Sox for closer Heathcliff Slocum, which sounds like a pitcher from like the 1920s, but uh, I do promise you that this was somewhere in the 1990s. And he makes his major league debut later that year. So, he makes his minor league debut in 1997 and ends up making his major league league debut that same year. That's incredible. Now... He only has one plate appearance that year, and he hits a single in it. He ends up spending the 1998 season as the backup to Scott Hatterberg. Yes, that's Scott Hatterberg. Uh, one day we'll do a Money Moneyball episode where we'll talk about Hatterberg, but he does end up getting into 86 games, and he does pretty well. He hits 253 with a 716 OPS. He hits 13 home runs, but if he had stretched out over a full catcher season, that would have been for 20-plus home runs. He was 22nd of 42 amongst catchers with 240-plus plate appearances that season with an 81 WRC+. Plus. He gets uh, four at-bats in the playoffs that year as well for Boston. Now, in 1999, he ends up taking over the catching duties full-time as Boston moves on from Hatterberg. He ends up catching in 144 games, and he hits 269 with a 330 OBP and 813 OPS, which is good for a 101 OPS+. Plus. He hits 20 home runs in just 544 plate appearances to go along with 39 doubles and 76 RBIs. That's a really solid season for a catcher in their first full year, but this is at the age of 20, uh, 26 And, I'm sorry, this is at the age of 27. He was fifth amongst qualified catchers that season with that 101 WRC+. And he ends up playing five games for the Red Sox in the playoffs against Cleveland in the ALDS and five against the Yankees in the ALCS. He doesn't hit particularly well in them, but he does have a home run in each series over that time period and performs all right. In game five of that series, for the record, against Cleveland, the Red Sox scored 23 runs. That's uh, obviously a lot. And Verentech had four hits in that game, scored five runs, the latter of which, so those five runs, is a record to this day. 2000, he continues on as the full-time catcher, but has a step back offensively, which isn't unheard of after making the big adjustment for a catcher in the major leagues here. He hits 248 with a 342 OBP and a 730 OPS, which drops him back down to an 83 OPS plus once again. He does hit 10 home runs in 519 plate appearances with 31 doubles, but obviously is quite the letdown after that fantastic 1999 season from Veritek. Now, the Red Sox don't make the playoffs that season. At the end of this year, though, the Red Sox signed Jason Veritek to a three-year $14.9 million extension. 2001 rolls around, and Veritek looks to be breaking out. He's having a monster season coming into uh, the year. He's hitting 293, good for a 124 OPS plus, and just 198 plate appearances. He had seven home runs. He had 11 doubles. He was absolutely killing the ball. And then on June 7th, he breaks his elbow, diving to catch a foul ball. And really, when you stop and look at it, this is a big what-if for Veritek. As I mentioned, he had a 124 WC+. At that point, that would have been third amongst catchers behind Paula Duca and Mike Piazza. He was on pace for over 21 home runs, which would have been fourth uh, amongst catchers that season. You do have to wonder if this injury ended up hampering him over the entire rest of his career. And actually, in 2002, you see this. The injury carries over into uh, 2002 for Veritek he is just 266 with a 724 OPS to go along with 10 home runs and 31 doubles for the third year in a row Boston does not make the playoffs but then in 2003 the Red Sox make a couple big moves they overhaul the lineup they had Kevin Millar David Ortiz Bill Miller and Todd Walker to the team and this new lineup flourishes and Veritek flourishes along with them here in 2003 as he's the best year of his career up until this point he plays 142 games And he ends up hitting 25 home runs with a 273 batting average and an 863 OPS, which was good for a 120 OPS plus. He also hits 31 doubles, has 85 RBIs, just a fantastic season for a catcher. He goes to his first all star game. He's second in home runs that year amongst catchers. He's third in WRC plus, is lights out in the playoffs. So the Red Sox go back to the playoffs. He crushes against Oakland. He has two home runs, he hits 286 with a 1.089 OPS in that series, and then in the ALCS against the Yankees, he continues to just absolutely rake where he hits 300 with a 1.033 OPS with two more home runs, three RBIs, and two doubles. Now, Boston ends up losing that series to the Yankees in six games on Aaron Boone's famous walk-off home run, as we all remember, but this will be a pattern that we will see talking about the two players we're going to talk about today with Veritech and with Posada in that One reason why we remember Veritek so fondly is because he was big in the playoffs. He stepped up a lot in the playoffs. There's a lot of big moments in the playoffs for the Red Sox versus Posada, who we'll talk about later, largely struggled in the playoffs aside from a few big moments. So this is something that we'll see with Veritek throughout his career. And uh, it's one of the reasons we see him uh, in the light that we do and we view him so fondly. Moving on to 2004, now the Red Sox come out hungry for revenge. They felt like they had that series and could have won there. But unfortunately, really, the team struggles for a large chunk of the season. Now, this continues where they look out of the running. They don't have a chance at the playoffs. And we had to July 24th going up against the Yankees. And any Red Sox fan will tell you about this day. I feel this is one of those moments where most any Red Sox fan can tell you where they were, what they were doing, and how they were watching or listening to this game when it happened. That You can't really be a Red Sox fan of this time period and not have this moment like seared into your brains. So for those who figured it out already, July 24th is the day of the famous brawl between the Yankees and the Red Sox. Now, I'll post a a video of the fight in the notes here for this episode. Definitely watch it. It's something else is wild to go back and watch it again. But let me set the stage a little bit here. Um... There was already some bad blood between the Red Sox and Alex Rodriguez, who was playing for the Yankees at the time. Apparently, the rumors had gone that the Red Sox had tried to trade for Rodriguez from the Rangers, and essentially, they were going to trade Manny Ramirez and John Lester for for A-Rod, and the deal ends up getting squashed because the Players Association refused to sign off on a reduction in A-Rod's contract. So, the, then, at this point, the Rangers deal A-Rod to the Yankees for Alfonso Soriano, and there was a little bit of bad blood there over that whole situation. And then, so, this is interesting because Arod openly talks about how he wanted to be in Boston. His fam- his wife's family is from Boston, so they really thought that this would be the perfect place for them, and then when it didn't work out, he ends up in New York, and that basically felt a little bit, on all sides, like a betrayal or a, a f- institutionally fanatic. So then... We know how 2003 goes. The season ends for the Red Sox on Aaron Boone's walk-off home run. They go on to the World Series and and win there. And it just felt like this sort of heartbreak that they didn't get to get A-Rod. And then he's a big part of this team that breaks their hearts. And we still see it now in how heated the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry was. But it's worth noting at this point in time in the 2000s, It's brutal. It was must-see TV every time they played. These two teams hated each other. So then we fast-forward to July 24, 2004. And there's a lot of wild things surrounding this game. It almost didn't happen. It was almost rained out. And it was one of those things where the teams were trying to decide if the field was unplayable. And there were some rumors that the Red Sox were in favor of not playing. But then several Red Sox players came and demanded to play. After it had already been decided they weren't going to play, the game had almost basically been announced as postponed. But then the Red Sox came and sort of demanded to play. And so an hour after the game was scheduled to start, the game does end up beginning. And it's really fascinating because if you listen to, say, Tito Francona was talking about it in this really great oral history I'll link to done on The Athletic by Jen McCaffrey back in, I believe it was in like 2019, uh, this was written. When they asked Tito Francona about it, he said, he said, and I quote, I think we had decided we were going to call it off because I went out to talk to Yankees manager Joe Tory and the umpires, and we actually said, We're not going to play this game, and I think we needed a few minutes. And then, next thing you know, apparently the way it goes, Francona gets back in the clubhouse, and uh, Theo Epstein, the, the GM at the time, is like, Hey, these guys actually want to play. So, so then Francona looks at Theo Epstein, but just told Joe Tory We're not playing, so you're coming out with me. And. Apparently, this pissed Joe off. So, there's already a ton of confusion. They had guys already starting to shower and, and clean up for the day. So, already, tempers are high going into this game. And, basically, it sounds like that it was like Kevin Millar and Jason Veritek and Doug Mirabelli were like the three big spearheaded guys who wanted to come in and say, let's play this game, let's do this today. And I guess a big reason of it was that if they called the game, Bronson Arroyo was supposed to pitch that day, if they called the game and pushed it to the next day, they would have gotten... Pedro going against the Yankees. And one of the big pushes apparently was from Veritek and from Millar was that they believed in Bronson Royal. They thought he, he would pitch well. They thought he was going to do well, and they wanted to get behind him. They didn't want to just skip him. They felt that sent a bad message. And I love this. This is the kind of stuff that when I talk about these intangible things that Jason Veritek brought to the table, it was stuff like this. It was stuff to say, hey, no, we believe in our guys, and you can't act like you don't, right? There was also some other things about The Yankees were having to throw a guy Tanyan Sturts out there instead of Kevin Brown, who was hurt at the time. So they were like, "Let's get the game in before they get fully healthy." There was all these different things. So the game starts, and nothing really happens until the third. At this point, the Red Sox are down three to nothing here in uh, the third, and a rod comes up. And apparently, the way that it worked was the kind of the way the pitch sequence went down was Bronson Arroyo gets Rodriguez a swing and miss on a first-pitch fastball, and then he comes inside with another fastball uh, in on his hands for a ball. He went inside again with a pitch uh, that gets clocked at about 87 miles an hour, so not very fast at all. Bronson Roy was not exactly known for having a fireball fastball, and it hits A-Rod right above his elbow uh, on his left arm, and basically A-Rod gets pretty salty about it, throws his bat over the dugout, and he starts walking down the first baseline, and... Is taking his time and peels off his elbow pad. And you start to get the impression that A-Rod is acting like he thinks Arroyo hit him on purpose. And the reason A-Rod kind of thought this was Arroyo typically didn't go inside a lot on righties like that twice in a row. So he had assumed that Arroyo meant to hit him with the first one too. And then when he didn't hit him with the first pitch, hit him purposefully with the second pitch and if you listen to Bronson Arroyo at the time he just simply was like listen the scouting team said that he had a hole in his swing on the inside part of the plate and liked it out over the plate so I throw 87 miles an hour I'm certainly not gonna throw it over the outside of the plate and so I went inside twice on him that seemed like the way to go after him and I hit him and so a as I mentioned is taking his time coming down first base and starts yelling at Arroyo and Arroyo is basically ignoring him as pitchers will often do, tries not to get into it with him, but Arod, you know, is, is yelling at him pretty good here. And Arod, for his credit, is basically I don't know what what got over me. He just felt he was getting pitched in uh, too inside too much, and he just felt like he needed to voice that he felt that was inappropriate. And apparently, the what Arod says to him is, uh, and I won't repeat it fully because I don't need. Nick Pollock coming after me here, but he said, throw that bleep over the bleeping plate, is what Arroyo says that he, he ends up saying to him, and he said it to him twice. And basically what ends up happening is Veritek sees him jawing at his pitcher and gets between A-Rod and Arroyo. What if he tries to charge the mound any of that stuff? And apparently the way that the story goes is that Veritox gets between A-Rod and so, when Veritek gets in there, they are face to face. And it's worth noting at this point, Veritek is still wearing his mask. He is still in his full gear. He's not shit any of it. And according to Veritek as well, and Kurt Schilling, a couple of guys were there, this is what they confirm what A Rod was yelling at a royal. And apparently, the rumor goes, Veritek says, and I quote, Hey, dude, we don't hit 260 hitters. And A Rod then turns and says a couple expletives to Veritek that, again, I will not repeat here because we are a family-friendly podcast here, unless I forget. Um, and at this point, the Veritek loses it, right? And Veritek just takes and full-fledged shoves his mitt in A-Rod's face. Like, it basically it was a punch, but it was a more of almost like a shove, like basically trying to make him eat the mitt at this point. And, oh... Part of what was going on was, and this is, again, to talk about those, those intangibles for Veritech as a leader. There are people who lead through fancy words. There are people who lead through examples. There are people who lead by understanding you or relating to you or, or connecting with you. Veritech led by being the guy who's always going to have your back. That was Veritech. The Veritech was like, you're not going to push my team around. You're not going to push us around. And largely the thought was that you know, that A-Rod was only doing this because it was Bronson Arroyo and not Pedro or Roger Clemens or Randy Johnson or that he was going after Bronson Arroyo because he could bully Bronson. And so Veritek was like, this is not going to stand. And so at the moment A-Rod starts yelling at him, he goes straight for the face, right? With the mitt. And I don't want to ever say that I condone fighting. For the most part, you'll see the record for me is that I think fighting is dumb. I think it is dumb. I don't think it really has a big place in baseball. And people who get too fired up about fights in baseball need to chill. But with that being said, I do understand them from time to time. And sometimes think they're, they're the right thing to do. If your guys are getting hit too much, sometimes the only thing you can do is charge the mound. Because you have to let them know they can't do that to you and your team. Things like that. What, in this situation, that was the same thing. But Vertec was trying to say, hey... You don't get to yell at my pitchers. You don't get to do these things. We are not the geeky kid whose lunch money you can steal, right? And once vertech slugs or mitts or whatever, A-Rod, it's on, right? So this starts a big brawl, right? And... Bench is clear. Dugout's clear. Everyone is on the field, seemingly. Bullpen coaches. Everyone is on the field at this point. And what ends up getting wild is at some point this just keeps escalating and escalating to the point which pretty quickly the actual fight between Veritek and Arod is over pretty quickly. But then suddenly like several fights in other spots throughout the field end up breaking out. And one of them spills over onto the like the you know, the on deck circle area, right? And this is between Trot Nixon, Tanyan Sturz, and Gabe Kapler, To the point which, you know, Trot Nixon's a fairly noted crazy person anyways. When it came to this sort of stuff and at some point they're over there and they've got them in wrestling moves and chokeholds and it, it's wild. There's a point in which they end up breaking it up because it dispels a little bit of the the craziness because some people are like oh, they're going to they're going to kill each other. <laughs> and they're choking each other and stuff like that. So they all the both teams start congregating over on that area because they're trying to to break this up right now. But it's uh it keeps escalating, keeps getting bigger and bigger. You know, it ends up swinging over towards the dugout and all these different things. And if you listen to some of the umpires talk about it, they at one point estimate they had right around 50 guys on the field all basically trying to fight each other. Which, that was the point in which the umpires were just kind of like, Yeah, we're not getting in the middle of none of this. You guys do what you're going to do. It basically resembled like a Royal Rumble of some sort. For those of you who used to watch the old days of the WWE, uh, is it WWE now? Yeah, WWE. It used to be the WWF in my day, but that's because I'm old. So now, at this point, if you watch the broadcast, there's things like they eventually get a shot of, of Theo Epstein in the stands smiling at this. There's just chaos everywhere. Finally, this all starts to calm down, and the umpires break everything up. They get both teams back in the dugout. I mentioned Taylor Sturts, who's the pitcher for the Yankees. When they finally broke up his, like, sub-fight with Trot Nixon, he's, like, bleeding from the ear, uh, all over his face. He's got blood on his jersey. And he goes out and pitches another inning. Just completely, uh, like, covered in blood. And he ends up getting removed after that inning with a, with a diagnosis of bruised pinky finger. And somehow, in some way, this game keeps going. And at this point, for the record, because they're in Fenway, I forgot to mention that, they're in Boston. So, of course, at this point, that crowd is going crazy for everything. They went nuts when A-Rod got tossed. They just are going bonkers at this point for everything. They know they were going to get quite a show in this game because now, coming into the third, they score. the Red Sox come back and score two runs in the third. They score two more in the fourth and take the lead four to three. So, in the fifth, Terry Francona ends up getting ejected. He came out and started arguing balls and strikes. So, they throw him out of the game as well. And everyone is just amped up in the Red Sox dugout. Everyone's just like a bull, like digging in the ground, ready to go here. And the Yankees come rolling back in the sixth and score six more runs. So now it's nine to four. But this knocks Bronson Royal right from the game, and you think this is over, then right? The Red Sox add four more runs in the bottom of the sixth inning and come right back, making it nine to eight, right? So the Yankees add one more run, and this leaves the Red Sox coming up in the ninth inning, trailing ten to eight. They end up having Nomar Garcia, Para, Trot Nixon, and Kevin Millar coming up. And at this point, enter Man is playing. Mariano R- Rivera is in the game, right? So that's it. That's the ball game. Ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, that's it. Yankees win. That's how good Mariano Rivera was. But at this point, Boston has taken on the Giant, so to say. They think they are on the same playing field with these guys. They're not afraid. They're not intimidated, and they go out there and they are they're ready to go after Rivera. Garcia Parr opens up the ninth with a double, and then Trot Nixon flies out. Moving Garcia Parra over to third. Then Kevin Millar comes up and singles to right, scoring Garcia Parra. So now it's 10 to 9, and up comes Bill Miller. He comes up and works the count up to 3 to 1, and finally Rivera gives him a fastball he could hit. And astonishingly, Miller crushes the ball over the fence into the Red Sox bullpen. And as you can imagine, Fenway goes crazy for what may be, in some ways, one of the most legendary, insane games in not just Red Sox history, but Major League Baseball history. It's the kind of stories you tell you know, your kids about, that you're reading books and like all these different things. These, these, these are the kind of things when I talk about. The mythology of baseball is games like this. And it's worth noting that I remember this. So this is 2004, so I would have been just graduating. I was in college when this happened. And this is back when what you did is you watched SportsCenter every day, all day. And I remember them cutting into this game. Watching Sports Center, we were sitting around doing our, our homework for class the next day, and we were watching Sports Center. And they cut live to this game because they're just like, this has, this has been such a crazy game. And I feel like there's this period of time from somewhere in the 90s all the way through the mid to 2010 and on time period where that's how you could mark a time in history sports wise is that Sports Center cut to it. Was this something that they were like, you can't miss this? I, I get it. You want to know what's going on in the rest of the world, sports-wise, but this is something you must see. So this game ends in pandemonium, right? The Red Sox walk it off, and it it is the spark that sets this season free for the Red Sox. They completely turn the season around. They end up, it's wild. They end up trading Nomar Garcia-Para. They acquire, uh, I think it's, I want to say Dave Roberts. Yep, Dave Roberts. They get Orlando Cabrera. They trade for Doug Mankiewicz. They were going to August 10 and a half games out of first. And it didn't matter. Something had clicked with them. And they believed. And in fact, this new lineup starting on August 16th. They end up winning 20 out of their next 22 games to make the playoffs. These are the sort of things that we make movies about right we don't make really right now great baseball movies um and i miss them but this is the kind of story you make a baseball movie out of that is the stuff stories are made of that is the core the essence of sports and why we love them and so how do you not get behind this before we get into the playoffs on this let's talk veritech this season is fantastic for the season he hits 296 with an 872 OPS that's good for a 121 OPS plus on the season he has 18 home runs he hit 30 doubles he has 73 RBIs on the season now that's for the whole year from if you look at from July 24th of that season on where we have this epic game he hits 328 with seven home runs in 201 plate appearances with 16 doubles and is good for a 965 OPS this is over 52 games he was just on fire. The man was possessed the entire rest of the season from this moment on. So not only did he provide the spark that led the team to turning that season around, but he did too. Just utterly fantastic. His 125 WRC plus on the season was fourth amongst all catchers in the league that season. And his 4.1 war was also tied for fourth on the year. Now jumping into the 2004 playoffs, he's okay in the, ALDS he hits a home run in just three games but in the ALCS going there against the Yankees he absolutely shines now this is again maybe one of the most famous series in the Red Sox Yankees rivalry maybe in Red Sox history of all time because this is when the Red Sox come back from a 3-0 deficit to win the series and go on to the World Series in that series Verdict gets 321 against the Yankees with two home runs. So he was right there at the heart of why the Red Sox were able to make that comeback and why they were able to finally make their way to the World Series. And it doesn't hit great in the World Series, but he does catch all four games as they sweep the Cardinals to win the World Series. This breaks an 84-year drought for the Red Sox. You can't write a story that good. If I were writing a movie and I put the script out there, you would be like, well, this is a little on the nose, don't you think? It's a little far-fetched. And here, this is what they were doing. And it's like, oh, they win the World Series. And I feel like a city at this point can often relate to a player, right? They they connect to a player. We've talked about this when I talked with Kevin Hastings about George Brett last season. I talked with J.R. Keynes about the connection that Edgar Martinez had with the Seattle Mariners fans, even though he was maybe the third star on that team. The city of Boston connected to Jason Veritek that I don't want to say he was necessarily like a folk hero in that sense, because that's probably getting a little melodramatic, so to say. But I think you look at this guy who, again, Boston is this town that every time I've ever been there, every time I've talked to Boston, Bostonians, so to say, that it's a town with a chip on his shoulder. That's a town that both thinks it's the best and also tends to wonder, does that, do other people think they're the best? And has a bit of a rivalry with New York, not just because of their sports teams, but just a, they are two cities in pretty close proximity, relatively speaking. They both kind of carry a chip on their shoulder and a bit of a superiority complex. But even with that, Boston was always the younger brother, so to say, the the, the the one that got bullied. And I think they really connected with Veritech because Veritech was the guy who said, no, no more. He, he's the guy who stood up. And it's just, it, it's hard To really quantify in the moment, in retrospect, to try and really describe what that connection must have been like. Especially since I'm not from Boston, but maybe I'll have Pete Ball on or one of my other Boston-rooting friends on. Maybe they can tell me about it, but this was a big thing. And so Verita quickly becomes a fan favorite and leader of this team. And it's worth noting, for the record, he's made captain the next year here. He, he actually signs a four-year, forty million dollars contract extension with the Red Sox, and he's named captain. And I bring this up because only three Boston Red Sox have ever been named captain before: Jimmy Funks, Carl Yastrzemski, and Jim Rice, three of the greatest baseball players of all time. And then Jason Varitek. That gives you an idea of just how much he not only meant to the fans but to the team. And they looked at him as the leader of this team. And at the time, there are actually only three captains named by by their teams in the majors at the time: Derek Jeter and Paul Konerko. So this was. A Big deal for a guy who was not necessarily, like, the star of a team that had a lot of stars on it. it It's just a really fascinating thing to see, again, both how he connected with the people of the town and with this team. So now, 2004 carries on into 2005, and... Veritek does not let up off the gas for a minute. He has another fantastic season. He plays in 133 games. He hits 22 home runs while hitting 281 with an 856 OPS and 30 more doubles that season. He had 70 RBIs. He is fantastic. Uh, He ends up with a 122 OPS plus and has a, let's see, and has a 124 WRC plus, nearly uh, matching his mark from the year before at 125. So he is just absolutely crushing the ball. Ends up putting up another 3.5 war. He goes to a second straight all-star game. He wins a gold glove and a silver slugger award that year. This is his third straight year with an OPS plus over 120. It was the fourth of his career. He had 55 extra base hits, which again, for a guy who's not that fleet of foot, is pretty good. And this year is not without drama on the Red Sox, so to say. Pedro ends up leaving that year. Pedro Martinez does for the Mets. And they end up signing David Wells and Matt Clement to replace him. They do end up winning 95 games, which ties the Yankees for first place. Again, the Yankees have had their way with this division for God knows how long. This is huge to go and tie them at, while winning 95 games, which is just a ton. They're deemed, unfortunately, to end up in second place because the essentially the Yankees had the head-to-head tiebreaker winning 10 games to 9 games in their head-to-head matchups. The Red Sox were easily the best offense in baseball that year. And Veritek was actually third on that team in home runs and in OPS+. plus. They just... Crush the ball, and Veritek was right there in the heart of that offense. While they do make it to the playoffs, they end up getting swept in the ALDS by the eventual World Series champion White Sox. You can't fault Veritek for this. He hits 300 in the series. Really was one of the few Red Sox who hit well in that series. So that ends 2005. Now moving on to 2006. This is a notable year for Veritek because on July 18th, he ends up breaking Carlton Fisk's record for games at catcher for the Red Sox at 991 just wild and on July 29th he actually suffers a knee injury blocking the plate has surgery to repair torn cartilage in his knee and only plays in 103 games that season he did return in September to play but just you could tell was not the same guy that year he's not very good He hits just 213 over the final 18 games of the season this pulls his season numbers way way down as for the year he only ends up hitting 238 with just 12 home runs in 103 games with a 725 OPS so Clearly uh, not the same guy when trying to come back from an injury. And this is normal with catchers. It's just, gosh, you need your knees. <laughs> you need your knees to be a good catcher. And you can tell it just took a toll on Veritek that year. Boston ends up missing the playoffs that year. Luckily, Veritek comes back in 2007 healthy. He plays in 130 games. He hits 255 with 17 home runs and a 787 OPS. Unfortunately, now at this point, we talked about how we don't really accurately measure Veritek's defensive ability. And war is not is not a metric that is kind to him and his defensive metrics. But at this point, the injury is still taking its toll on his defense, and he's worth just .8 war that season. The Red Sox end up making it all the way to the World Series. Um, and I think, obviously, it's hard when 2004, as a World Series run, has, as I mentioned, all the markings of a storybook ending. They win 20 out of 22 games. They beat their arch rival, the Yankees. There's the fight in the middle of the season. They come back from 3-0 to go in and go win the, the series to go to the World Series against the Yankees. It just, everything about it is the thing of myths and legends. 2007 wasn't really like that. And so this kind of flies under the radar a little bit. And a lot of people forget they won this World Series and don't give, frankly, enough credit for it. And especially considering the Red Sox dominated all season long, they took the division lead on April 18th and never lost it. These are, this is a team starting to blossom and really take over. They go to the playoffs and Boston wins the ALDS against the, the Angels. Veritek doesn't hit particularly well. He only had a 454 OPS across three games, but it's a three-game sample. N- means nothing. But on the other hand, we move to the ALCS, where Boston was again down 3-1, but this time against Cleveland. And he's a huge force for their comeback. He hits for an 8.45 OPS against, across seven games with a home run and three doubles. And he carries that right over into the World Series. He stays hot, hitting 3.33 with a 7.33 OPS and a double against the Rockies as Boston sweeps the Rockies. One day, that's a whole other storybook a tale on the Rockies making the World Series that year that we'll tell uh, on one of these episodes because it's really incredible, too. But. The Red Sox win the World Series. Veritek is at the heart of it. it. was incredible throughout the playoff run from the ALCS on. And once again, we see Veritek cementing his legacy by performing when it mattered the most. 2008, Veritek makes his third and final All-Star game. He was chosen by the coaches, and a lot of people kind of hint this was a more like well-deserved lifetime achievement award. He didn't have a great season. He only hit 220 with 13 home runs in 131 games, as really clearly he's starting to slow down overall. And so it does feel like a lifetime achievement award, which is perfectly valid. He earned it, right? And as I mentioned, this is really the first time in his career he struggled at the plate. He only had a 672 OPS on the season. He does catch his fourth no-hitter with John Lester on May 18th, and then Boston does make the playoffs. Now, at this point, Veritek struggles. They lose to the Rays in the ALCS, and this will be the last time Veritek makes the playoffs. And it's worth noting at this point, Veritek is 36. So it's not that shocking. that guy put that much mileage on on his body who had major knee injuries as a catcher that has caught over a thousand games at this point in his career. Then he's starting to break down at 36. That's not surprising and it shouldn't surprise anyone. But moving to 2009, he signs a one-year $5 million deal to stay with the Sox. But this is, again, he's 37. He basically repeats 2008 again and has a pretty rough season at the plate. And so, at the deadline, the Red Sox trade for Victor Martinez to come catch, and Veritek moves to the backup catcher position. That's worth noting, for the record, every story I read doesn't sound like Veritek put up a fight about it or threw a fit. Just did what was best for the team and did what he could. In 2010 through 2011, he... Battles is the backup catcher, just really never gets right again. He plays just 39 games in 2010 and 68 games in 2011. Over that time, he's basically a league average catcher at the plate, right around 100 WRC+. plus. But now he's 39. And basically, knowing when it was time to call out a career, Veritek retires there in 2011 at the age of 39. In 2012, he's named a special assistant to the GM for the Red Sox where he ends up remaining in that position until 2018. So he never even really walks away from baseball, just jumps right into seeing how he can continue to help the Reds. And then in 2018, he's named Special Assistant to the President of Baseball Operations, where he continues all the way up until 2020, where he's named Special Assistant slash Catching Coach. And later that year, he is promoted to Game Planning Coordinator, which was his first uniform coaching role as a member of the Red Sox organization. In 2021, the title of that job is changed to player information coach. And as I understand it, he's still serving in that role for the Red Sox to this day. So it's worth noting that he's currently still working for the Red Sox, an organization that he started with in 1997. So that's what, let's see if I can do this math here. That's almost 30 years that he spent with the Red Sox. It's hard to separate the name Jason Veritek from the modern image of the Boston Red Sox. And I think then looking at it, it's worth asking, what is Veritek's legacy? And if you look, he has a stretch in there where he gets MVP votes in three different seasons. He goes to three different All-Star games. He wins one gold glove. He's one silver slugger. And I think the awards and the numbers, like I said, don't really cover how good and how important he was. Because most of his career hitting and defensive numbers are, are solid but unspectacular. And I think not to get hyperbolic again about it, but to capture what Veritek meant, both as a player and as a leader and as a teammate, there's just so much more you can't do it just through the numbers, right? And I don't, I, I like I said, I don't think in a way there are players that I think of when I think of the Red Sox in the 2000s. Pretty much, it after David Ortiz or Pedro Martinez, the third name that comes to my mind is Jason Veritek. So you can't really talk about the Red Sox in the 2000s without mentioning Jason Veritek. He is, in, in a really unique way, one of the faces of the franchise at that time period. And having so many pitchers perform well with him behind the plate, definitely speaks to his game-calling ability, his baseball mind. Pretty much everyone, you read any any interview about Veritek, and everyone just assumes he's going to be a coach one day. So now, of course, the question is, as we love to do on this podcast. We need to rank him. We need to put Jason Veritek on our big list. Now, as we remembered, give us an idea of the list, I won't read everyone. It'll be in the notes, so take a look at the list here. Through our first season, we ranked 46 different players in the 18 episodes that we did prior to this one. And let me read you our top 10 first. So, Number one is Greg Maddox. Number two is Idro Suzuki. Number three is George Brett. Number four is Adrian Beltrade. Number five is Clayton Kershaw. Number six is Edgar Martinez. Number seven is Sandy Koufax. Number eight is Tony Gwynn. Number nine is Hank Greenberg. And number 10 is Joey Votto. At number 15, we have David Ortiz. At number 20, we have Home Run Baker. At number 25, we have Jim Cat. At number 30, we have Ryan Braun. At number 35, we have Jose Bautista. At number 40, we have Robin Ventura. At number 45, we have Mark Pryor and... And on last spot here at number 46 is James Paxton. So where does Veritech fall in this area? So I was thinking of a couple different spots and really the three or four guys I wanted to like size them up or compare them to were on this list were Jason Bay at number 38, Jose Bautista there at number 35 and Matt Williams, who was up the list a little bit at, uh, Number 34, right above Batista. So, those are like the three guys I was like, ah, he's probably somewhere right in there. So, now Veritech had 193 home runs in his career with a 776 OPS. It was a 99 OPS plus for his career. And just give you some of the ideas of some of the things I look at with this. Obviously, I look at war a lot of times. Veritech had 24.2 war over his career. But then I do, and I know some people will think that I'm crazy. There will be people who are strictly stats guys. You either hit the numbers, or you have the war, or you have whatever. But I think I will often give bumps up for cultural reasons. If you mean something to the game more than just being a great player, based on, say, where you come from, or things you've stood for, or things like that. But also, your contributions to a city or to a team. If you mean more to a city, than, or have a connection to a specific city or team, that some of these other players don't. That also will give you a bit of a boost. And so that's what makes ranking Veritek a little difficult. An arbitrary thing to think about is how do we quantify the impact that we talked about that Veritek had on the teams he played for and on Boston. And I'm going to give him a little bit of a bonus because, A, he was fantastic in the playoffs for most of his career. Uh, very good playoff hitter. In fact, he hit what was it, 11 different home runs in his playoff career. And then you throw in 2004, the fight, that season as a whole. Give him a little bump for playing for the same team for his whole career. So to give some of these comparisons here, uh, like I said, Veritek had 193 home runs. Jason Bay had 222. Veritek played for longer than Bay. So I think I'm tempted, even though Bay was, I think, a bit of a better hitter than Veritek. Obviously, uh, he was a 121 OPS plus hitter for his career. I had an 841 OPS for his career, which is much higher than Veritek. He also didn't play as hard of a position defensively. Veritek has almost 60 more doubles than Jason Bay does, and they're right around the same amount of RBIs. So I think I look at them as being fairly even in that sense. They're also pretty close in war. Verdict: had 24.2 war, whereas Jason Bay had 24.8 war. I look at those two as being the same in terms of war. Then I give Verdeck the bump up for a being a much better defender. He had 8.8 defensive war over his career, whereas Jason Bay had negative 7.6. And then when you throw in the cultural parts of his leadership and his big performances in the playoffs and breaking the curse of the Bambino for the Red Sox and winning that World Series and just being the leader of that team, I give him the bump up. So I'm going to put him at nothing else past Jason Bay there at 38. So what about Jose Bautista? Jose Bautista hit way more home runs. Bautista had 344 home runs to... Basically, one and a half times what Veritek had at 193. He was a 124 OPS+. Plus, obviously, way above Veritek's 99 OPS+. Plus. Bautista had 36.7 war compared to Veritek's 24.2 war. You look at it and say, okay, he's got 12, almost 12 war on him. and But then you go to the defensive war, and Bautista was even worse than Bay, negative 7.9 defensive war. So, obviously, Veritek was a much better defender at a much more difficult position to defend. I think that matters. And Bautista has, obviously, some big moments for Toronto. It's literally the greatest bat flip of all time. And I think Bautista, while he probably didn't mean as much to Toronto as Veritek did to Boston, he still meant a ton to Toronto and gave Toronto fans a lot of big moments. and was a big performer in the playoffs. So I think that's right where my sweet spot is. I don't even necessarily need to look at Matt Williams, who I have ranked one ahead of Batista. I think I've got Batista here over Jason Veritek. So that seems to be my sweet spot. So out of what, out of the forty six players that I've ranked so far, I would slot Jason Veritek at number thirty six between Cabrian Hayes and Jose Bautista. I think it's a good spot for him. I think it's a, a spot that pays proper respect to what he contributed and still being honest about his performances and the entirety of his career overall. So I think that's a really respectable spot for him, a really important spot for him. I really like Jason Veritek there at number 36. So that wraps up talking about Jason Veritek. Before we jump over and start talking about our second player, let's take a short break.
0: When it comes to weight management, we tend to put our focus on what we eat, but Noom's approach puts the focus on why we eat. You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Try Noom today and see the results for yourself. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com to sign up for your trial today. Sometimes it can feel like food has an emotional control over you. Well, it's time to show your food who's boss with Noom. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Their psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. And they help you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on day one. The best part? You decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Start taking control of your weight management and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com to sign up for your trial today.
1: Welcome back. So now it's time for us to jump in and talk about the second player in our little duo here. And that is Jorge Posada. And I I feel like I can hear the Boston fans booing here in in the back of my mind as I mentioned Posada. And like I said in the beginning, I feel like these two players are intrinsically connected. They're combined, right? I, I cannot really, in my head, imagine one without the other. And my take on Posada... Before we dive into the specifics of his career and whatnot, it's just as a constant. For you lost fans out there, Penny might be Desmond's constant, but I feel like through the 2000s, if you are a Yankees fan, Jorge Posada was your constant, right? And I think about when I talked with Andy Patton about Jamie Moyer, that sometimes a player can mean so much to a fan base because they just were there for all of it. All of the great memories, all the great things that you think of, that you associate with that team, they were there for it. And they were consistent and producing through that time period, and that's how I think of Jorge Posada. Is this guy who just every Yankees memory I have, and I don't root for the Yankees, but obviously they are pretty ubiquitous, especially during this time period where they they absolutely dominated. I can't think of the Yankees of this time period without being Jorge Posada's face that kind of comes up there. It's basically Jeter and Posada, right? So jumping into Jorge Posada's career, and what's going to be fun is as we go through is he turns out to be one of the better-hitting catchers of all time. Uh, but we'll dive into that a little more. But it's really fascinating to me that basically they, both Posada and Vertec have the bulk of their careers from 1997 to 2011. So again, the connection between these two guys is, is just crazy. He has a 17-year career. He's a five-time All-Star with five Silver Sluggers. He's 28th all-time in games as a catcher with uh, 1,574. He's amassed 42.7 career war throughout his playing career. And it's interesting... Obviously, with a catcher, you always have to keep the numbers in mind. That you know, if you set true slugger expectations for anyone but a few catchers throughout history, you don't get the right perspective for catcher numbers. So keep in mind, if you get twenty something home runs because they don't get the full six, seven hundred play opportunities that other hitters do, uh, that that's really good. Right, Uh, but he was also a a bit of a jack of all trades hitter. He hit for average. He hit for some power. Lots of doubles. He did a little bit of everything. And to go into his some of the things that he accomplished. To give you an idea, Posada is one of only five catchers all time with 1,500 hits, 350 doubles, 275 home runs, and 1,000 RBIs. The other four, Johnny Bench, Gary Carter, Carlton Fisk, and Ivan Rodriguez. That's really good company to be in if you're talking about who are some of the greatest hitting catchers of all time, right? Of all the catchers in the Hall of Fame, only Yogi Berra has better numbers in all three of the major categories when I think of, average home runs and RBIs. So, again, we are talking about one of the best hitting catchers ever. He has the 8th most home runs in Yankees history. Now, to go to the beginning, Jorge Posado was born in Puerto Rico in 1971. His father was a Cuban who fled Cuba to get away from Castro. He had served 2.5 years in prison for speaking out against Fidel Castro, and he fled to, to Puerto Rico, and Posado's mother, who was Dominican. His father ended up serving as a major league scout for over 40 years for the Yankees, the Astros, the Blue Jays, the Braves, and the Rockies. His uncle Leo had a short three-year career with Kansas City in the 1960s. So baseball was a part of Jorge Posada's life growing up from the very beginning, just just like Veritek in that way. He ends up getting drafted. He's not going drafted by the Yankees twice, but he gets drafted by the Yankees in 1990. At the time, he was an infielder. They were worried that he didn't quite have the speed to stick as an infielder, so they end up moving him to catcher. He was highly rated for his hit tool, for his attitude, and he ends up reaching AAA in 1993. He, so he f- flies up the minor league systems. and sits at AAA for three years. He gets a one-game call-up in 1995, but does not get a plate appearance. He then, in 1996, comes up for three different stints throughout the 1996 season. He gets just one hit in 15 plate appearances, is mostly there for at the time for defensive purposes. Finally, in 1997, he gets uh, brought up as the backup for then catcher Joe Girardi. Now, he hit 250 in that season with six home runs, 12 doubles, and 25 RBIs in just 60 games, which, if you put that over like a full season, is a 16 home run, 32 double pace with a 101 OPS plus. Not too bad for for your first like big stint in the majors. The Yankees go to the playoffs that year and they lose in the ALDS to Cleveland, who would eventually go to the World Series that year and lose. Tears, so many tears. In 1998, Posada becomes the main catcher. He catches 111 games that season. He hits 268 with 17 home runs and 63 RBIs, puts up a season of 3.1 war with a 112 WRC plus, a 115 OPS plus. That's with an 824 OPS. He was seventh amongst catchers that year with over 300 plate appearances in WRC plus. He was fifth in home runs, all while playing at least 20 games fewer than everyone who was above him in home runs. And he was fifth in war with that 3.1 war mark. The Yankees go to the playoffs that year again, as will be often repeated throughout this whole section they beat Texas in the ALDS Posada plays in one game getting no hits in three play appearances and they beat Cleveland in five games in the ALCS Posada gets two hits in 15 played appearances including a home run finally then in the World Series they sweep the Padres in four games and Posada plays in three of those games getting three hits in nine at-bats with another home run and we talked about with Veritek how a big part of his legacy and a big part of how we remember him is performing in the playoffs when the game's counted And while it would appear that Posada also is going to do that, he tends to actually struggle for the most part in his career in the play. This is really one of the few playoffs where he comes up big here in the World Series against the Padres here. But this is also seen as Posada's coming out party. So then 1999, Posada plays in 112 games, hitting 245 with 12 home runs and 19 doubles with 57 RBIs. This is a bit of a down second year, kind of like Veritech did. It seems like maybe, I wonder if it's a trend amongst catchers to once you start getting acclimated to the big leagues and you start trying to learn how to catch in the big leagues that so there's like a sophomore slump there. He's a 93 WRC+, plus is worth 1.2 war. He drops all the way down to 16th in war amongst catchers that season, 15th in WRC+. plus. The Yankees go all the way to the World Series again and win in a sweep over the Braves. Posada plays in just six games overall, but he does hit a big home run against Boston in the ALCS. That then we go into the next year in 2000 and Joe Girardi moves on to the Cubs. So Posada, while he had mostly taking over the majority of the catching duties. Now he's a huge share of the catching duties. Now he's going to be catching up 130-something games a year or so for most of his career here from year on out. And this clicks with him. He responds beautifully. He hits 287 in 151 games with 28 home runs, 35 doubles, and 86 RBIs. That's fantastic for really any hitter, let alone a catcher. He has a 943 OPS in the season, which is good for a 139 OPS plus. That was fifth amongst catchers. 140 won 40 WRC+, which is 4th amongst catchers, 30th in the league as a whole, let alone just against catchers. He was 3rd amongst catchers that year in home runs, 1st in doubles. He had 6.1 war, which was 1st amongst catchers, and his 10.1 defensive war was 10th that year. He had a 17.1 walk rate, which is 7th in the entire league, let alone amongst catchers, where he led catchers in that category. And he ends up going to his first All-Star game. He wins the Silver Slugger Award that year. The Yankees go to the playoffs, duh. And win the third consecutive World Series over the Mets. Now, this is where we start to see Posada kind of struggle in the playoffs. He musters just 11 hits over 16 games with 5 doubles and 5 RBIs across the entire uh, World Series run. And that's a trend we'll start to see throughout most of his career here in the playoffs. Now, 2001... He does not let up at all. He It's more of the same as Posada hits 287 with 22 home runs, 95 RBIs and 28 doubles in 138 games. He goes to his second straight All-Star game. He wins a second straight Silver Slugger Award. His 120 WRC Plus was fourth amongst catchers that year. His 22 home runs was also fourth amongst catchers that year. He had a 838 OPS with a 118 OPS Plus. Go figure. That also was fourth amongst catchers that year. 3.5 War was all he could really muster though, unfortunately, because this is where we really start to see the other side of Jorge Posada's career, in that he was not a great defender at the catcher position. He led the league in pass balls that year and in errors at catcher with, I believe, 18 pass balls and 11 errors. And these numbers will drag down his war total throughout his career. As I mentioned, he got up to about 42 war. You have to wonder what could have been if his defense had been better. Could he have gotten up in the 50s or the 60s and really had a great Hall of Fame argument instead of just being a borderline Hall of Famer like he is right now? so it's a shame because he really was a fantastic hitter this time this is 2001 the yankees go to the world series again but this time they lose to the diamondbacks in seven games in what is one of the more memorable world series of all time coming in you know new york after 9-11 that was really a world series to remember i remember that very fondly he does hit a home run in that world series and he hits two home runs and three doubles in 17 games across that world series run Otherwise, it's not hit for a great average, really, or a base percentage. But he really had left his mark on this World Series run against Oakland in the Division Series. He had a big solo home run that won them a game. It was the only run scored in the game. And in that same game was... Everyone remembers the play jeter makes in this game where he cuts the ball off and flips it behind him to prevent a run being scored. And one lot of people forget is that it was Posada on the other end of that flip. So he's who catches the ball and makes a really fantastic tag to make the out happen. So it's it's worth noting that uh, while Jeter gets all the glory for that, Posada makes a really nice play there as well to prevent that run. In 2002, Posada really, the defense kind of rears its ugly head again as he struggles behind the plate. He let all catchers and errors again. Really struggled with past balls, but the bat wasn't going anywhere. He more than made up for it with the bat. He had 268 with 20 home runs that season, 40 doubles, and 99 RBIs in 143 games. He had a 123 WRC+. That was third amongst catchers that year, and he was third in OPS with a 837 OPS. He was second in home runs, first in doubles, and in RBIs. He had 4.2 more that season, which was second amongst catchers. And he ends up going to his third consecutive All-Star Game and wins his third consecutive Silver Slugger Award. The Yankees losing the playoffs to the Angels in the ALDS, where Posada hit just 235 in four games over that series, but he did have a home run. Now, we go into 2003, and this is probably Posada's career year. Now, he's 31 at this point. He hits 281 with 30 home runs, 24 doubles, and 101 RBIs. He has a 145 WRC+, which is second amongst catchers that season. He had almost 100 more, uh, more plate appearances than Javi Lopez, who was number one in WRC Plus amongst catchers that year. He was second in home runs in RBIs. His 15.8 walk rate was number one amongst catchers, as was his 405 OBP. His 6.0 war was second amongst catchers that season, and he went to his fourth consecutive All-Star game and won his fourth consecutive Silver Slugger that year. He actually ended up finishing third in MVP voting as well. One of two years he would get MVP votes, and just has a, just a fantastic season. The Yankees do go to the playoffs, and they end up going to the World Series again. They lose to the Marlins in that series. And Posada, once again, struggles for the most part in the playoffs. He struggles in the Division Series and struggles mightily in the World Series. But it's worth noting, again, 2003, I don't know if you remember from, oh, I don't know, probably about 40 minutes ago, but that is the year that the Yankees beat the Red Sox in the ALCS to go to the World Series on Aaron Boone's big walk-off home run. Over the seven games in that series, he hits 296 with a home run, four doubles, and six RBIs. So he was a huge part of the Yankees' success in that series and getting them to the World Series. He just struggled once they got there. So moving from that World Series loss to 2004, Posada has another solid season. And this is kind of the hallmark of Jorge Posada is just consistent production. Year after year, just, you know, penciling his production. It was like clockwork. He has another solid season here in 2004. He hits 272 with 21 home runs, 81 RBIs, and 31 doubles over 137 games. He puts up 4.1 war that was tied with Jason Veritek for 4th amongst catchers that year. He was 3rd in home runs, 4th in RBIs, 1st in WRC+, as well as WOBA, OBP, and walk rates. So, just an absolute dominant year amongst catchers for Jorge Posada. He doesn't actually go to the All-Star game this year, which kind of blows my mind nor does he get the Silver Slugger Award. Now, we've talked about 2004 already. Uh, This is the year, obviously, the Yankees famously blow a 3-1 lead to the Red Sox in the ALCS, and unfortunately, Posada did not play well in that series or the ALDS as well. So his postseason struggles continue here. For the record, in the big brawl in 2004, as far as really most of the stories go and the video goes, Posada stayed out of that fight, but going to 2005... He is solid if unspectacular in 2005. He hits 262 with 19 home runs and 71 RBIs, 23 doubles. He's a 110 WRC plus in the season with a 340 WOBA, a 12.1% walk rate, 782 OPS, all great numbers, especially for a catcher. 3.3 war was still fourth amongst catchers that year. And the Yankees go on to lose to the Angels in the ALDS. Posada does hit a home run and a double in the series, but hits just 231 in the series. So uh, while he was able to put some of the bigger hits he did still struggle uh, consistently uh, from a consistency basis from game to game there in the playoffs. 2006 is a huge bounce back number, uh, it's a huge bounce back year for him. If 2003 isn't his best season, it might be either this year or 2007. Uh, he's 277 23 home runs, 27 doubles, and 93 RBIs in 143 games. And his 125 WRC plus is third amongst catchers, his 374 OBP is fourth. His 4.3 war was second in uh, amongst catchers and the Yankees lose to Detroit in four games in the ALDS. But Posada is fantastic in the season. It's 500 for the series with seven hits, including a home run and a double two RBIs and a 1.34 OPS. And a lot of people are wondering uh, if this was Jorge Posada breaking out, if he was turning the corner in terms of his playoff struggles so far in his career. Now, jumping to 2007, he earns MVP votes for the second time in his career. He actually finished 6th in MVP this year. He hits 338 with 20 home runs, 42 doubles, 90 RBIs, and 144 games. This is probably, in reality, his best season. He had a 157 wrc WRC-plus that year. That leads all catchers. He has 5.6 war-led all catchers. And he also led catchers that year in doubles, OBP, and OPF. Just absolutely demolished the ball that season. He goes to his fifth and final All-Star game and he wins his fifth and final Silver Slugger award that year as well. They get to the playoffs and the Yankees lose in 4 games to Cleveland and once again Posada does not play, uh, does not hit well in the series. Now We move into 2008, and 2008 is something of a lost year for Posada. He misses May with an injury and then goes on the injury list in July for the first time in his career. Eventually, he would have shoulder surgery and would miss the rest of the season. He plays in just 51 games that season. And I think it's worth noting that while he did go to the IL for the first time in his career here, this is at the age of 38 that this happens. No, uh, I'm sorry, 37. To go that far into your career, almost 13 years without going on the injury list, is really incredible and it just shows how consistent Posada was and how the kind of carry he took of his body and the routines and things that allow a player to play that long that consistently without major injury now in 2009 he gets back up there he plays in 111 games hits 285 with 22 home runs 25 doubles and has 81 RBIs his 126 WRC plus was still second amongst catchers that year his fourth in home runs fifth in RBIs amongst catchers and at this point Unfortunately, coming off the shoulder injury, coming off of all the missed time, his defense is cratering at this point. It's absolutely bottomed out. And he ends up finishing 17th in war amongst catchers, which is 0.8 war, which gives you an idea of just how bad his defense had gotten to up until this point. The Yankees make the playoffs. Again, surprise. They do go to the World Series. They beat uh, Philadelphia in six games that year. Posada's great in the ALDS against Minnesota. He hits 364 with a home run in that series, but other than that, struggles in the rest of the playoffs. The f- crazy thing, though, is he does end up really coming through in the World Series, despite not hitting particularly well, as he puts up five RBIs in the World Series there to help take down Philadelphia. This is really, if you think about Posada's last great season here, is uh, 2009, because 2010, you start to see the writing on the wall. This was the beginning of the end for Posada, as he's good but not great in what would end up being his penultimate season, so to say. In June, just because it's notable, he does hit grand slams in consecutive days, which he's one of only two Yankees ever do so. He hits 248 with 18 home runs, 23 doubles, 57 RBIs in 120 games. He still ends up managing a 119 WRC+, which was seventh amongst catchers. Now, at this point, though, he started to move into DHing half the time, and one of the things that really derailed this part of his career was he starts to struggle with concussions he took a off the mask and so the Yankees weren't sure really if not only could he catch anymore but should he and he ends up DHing for half the season the Yankees make the playoffs they lose in the ALCS to the Rangers and while he didn't hit for great average this was actually a really good postseason for Posada in nine games he has three home runs in the playoffs there. Going into the offseason, Posada has arthroscopic surgery on his left knee to fix a torn meniscus. So between the concussions and the the knee injury, obviously he's also 39 at this point. The writing is probably a bit on the wall. In 2011, Russell Martin takes over as full-time catcher. Posada then becomes the DH full-time. And Posada struggles with this. He does not necessarily adjust to it emotionally speaking, so to say. Um, he, He struggles pretty heavily hitting the ball. He gets dropped in the order. Uh, one day, the story goes, he was dropped all the way to ninth in the order by manager Joe Girardi. See how that came full circle? And Posada took offense to it and came in just asked to just take it out of the lineup that day. And it did not go over well in the media. It did not go over well with Clubhouse. It did not go over well with really anyone. And Posada comes out and says, I felt like I wasn't being treated right, that people weren't always being straightforward with me as I wanted them to be or treated me as I deserve. And you're starting to see this kind of also head towards a little bit of a messy breakup. This is not really how you want to see Posada go out as a Yankee. And and I think one of the hard parts is that this and a few other things I'm going to bring up here, this is what, for some reason, people seem to remember about Jorge Posada uh, a lot of times when I talk to Yankees fans or people who like to talk baseball with me, historically speaking. They remember this. They remember him being asked to take out of the lineup that day and him talking about feeling like he wasn't being respected. And it's just mind-boggling that, like, This situation seemed to invalidate everything that came before it to a lot of people. And that was just weird to me. For the season, he hits just 235 with 14 home runs and 44 RBIs in 115 games. He's below 100 WRC plus for the first time since 2000. And this was for only the second time in a full season for his career that he had a WRC plus below 100. That's just remarkable consistency throughout your career. The Yankees lose in the playoffs to Detroit in the ALDS. Luckily, Posada gets to end his Yankees career with a bang. He gets 429 over the five games that they played in that series. They head into the offseason, and the Yankees let Posada know they're moving on, that that he's not going to be the catcher, they're going to stick with Martin, and Posada, rather than sign with a different team or play for a team that's not the Yankees, chooses to retire. And one of the weird things that happens with players like this, I feel like, is I think a lot of times the Yankees do this a lot. Um, I know my team, the Guardians, do this a lot, and I hate it when they do it but oftentimes when a team will part ways with the player suddenly you turn around in the media there's just trash being thrown out there like there all this stuff starts coming out and you always have to take it both seriously but with a grain of salt as well because you don't know what the agenda of the team is or of the player or any of those things but there were rumors that he had a reputation as a whiner and they talk about like at the beginning of the 2011 season he he mentioned not liking being the designated hitter so catching and that he was upset about well, because he was the DA he was being excluded from meetings with the catchers to discuss strategies and it sounded like he and Joe Girardi butted heads and and a lot of that was that for Posada Joe Torre the, the legendary Yankees manager for most of Posada's career coming up till 2008 was like a father figure to Posada and that's how Posada often describes him as as another father in his life and that that was a big deal because his relationship with Girardi wasn't like that. He, he's he literally, I think was once quoted. I'm paraphrasing, but said something along the lines of Joe Torrey's like a father to me. Joe Girardi was just a manager and they seen the butt heads. I guess Posada would, according to Mark uh Feinsend of the New York daily news, Posada had a propensity to ignore Girardi's instructions at times. He would disregard scouting reports and call pictures on the fly, sort of in defiance of what Girardi was telling him to do. And Girardi's kind of a no nonsense sort of guy Anyways, so it's not surprising they butted heads over this. So all these things come out as referendums on Posada. And like I said, you take them with a grain of salt. I remember them being very impactful at the time when they came out because it was it seemed very contrary to the Jorge Posada I had watched. And I don't know how to weigh them or take them, like I said. But now the question is, what is Posada's legacy here? You know, he's a part of a Yankees run that includes six trips to the World Series, including four World Series wins, and that is a dynasty especially in baseball. From 2000 to 2010, Posada led all catchers in home runs. He was second in WRC plus to Joe Mauer over that time period. And he had an 872 OPS. He led all catchers in war over that time period. I, I think of his connection to Yankees. fans. One of my favorite things from when I was a kid and when Cleveland go play the Yankees, you'd hear the crowd if it was in New York. Whenever Jorge would come up, they'd yell, hip hip, Jorge. And I thought that was really fun. When the crowd starts doing stuff like that, that they've really connected with a player. And I think you have to keep that in mind that Jorge Posada was a, was a player that was there for all the great moments of that Yankees dynasty and was just the constant. He was the consistent thing that was always there. And the fans really connected to him for that. He was on 14 postseason teams throughout his career. So if you think about it, he had a 17-year career. That means he was on. He went to the playoffs 14 of the 17 years he played in the majors. That's, that's incredible. He is 3rd all-time in walks amongst catchers. He is ninth all-time in OBP and 8th in slugging amongst catchers all-time. His 121 OPS plus ranks 12th all-time. And if you look and say, this guy's an incredible hitter, why is he in the Hall of Fame? And it's because of his defense. He was not a good defender at catcher. When we talk about, say, some of the intangibles at catcher that, that we see with Jason Veritek, like how he called games or things that, we don't really see evidence of that with Posada. And so his defense is what kept him from the hall. And it's one of those big what-ifs of if he could have even been an average defender or even slightly above average defender at catcher for most of his career, would he have racked up 50 to 60 war? And really had a great shot at the Hall of Fame. But what if he had stayed as an infielder and maybe played second base or something? You know, these are the what-ifs that make me think about that because his defense does pull down and weigh down his numbers for what is otherwise a really great hitter. He was one of seven catchers to have at least eight seasons with 20 or more home runs. I believe all of them, but I think it's Buster Posey and one other the catcher who is not eligible yet and I can't think of right now. Uh, all of them are Hall of Famers. And his 275 home runs is ninth all-time amongst catchers. So, uh, again, we're just talking about a very impressive hitting machine at catcher who was just a constant for Yankees fans across one of the greatest Yankees dynasties of the modern era. But really, to wrap things up, where does Jorge Posada rank? Where on our all-time list does he rank? And obviously he's going to go above Veritech. I I try to give as much weight to Veritech's intangibles here as as I can, but at uh, some point, Posada has almost 20 war on Veritech at, basically over the exact same time period. So, I think you have to put him, uh, at the very least, above Veritech. But if I'm putting him above Veritech, then we ask ourselves how does he compare to, say, you know, Bautista, right? And while Bautista, you know, has more home runs, not as many home runs. Batista had three hundred and forty four home runs. Posada had two hundred and seventy five. So it's about seventy more home runs. But again, at a harder position to play that you look at sort of their numbers in comparison and I oh gosh, man, because Batista had a 124 OPS plus. Posada is a 121 OPS plus was a career two seventy three hitter for Posada. Batista was a career two forty seven hitter. Actually, yeah, looking at it, career OPS is 8.48 for Posada. Bautista was 8.36 for his OPS. That's a, that's an interesting one. I think I definitely put him up above that. It, you, Posada hasn't beaten RBIs. Hasn't beaten... Uh, now now look at it and go, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to go past Bautista here. So then we can start jumping up. And I want to kind of take a big leap up because we've got Matt Williams at 34. And I think if I'm applying the same logic for Bautista to Williams... I think that uh, still fits. Same with Prince Fielder at 33. Moises Alou at 32. And Alou is one I really thought about because they have very similar numbers. I think Alou is like 42.3 or something like that for his career. But I I think I'll put then Posada above Alou for then what he means to to Yankees. And at some point winning four World Series with him behind the plate. Uh, That counts extra. Right. So I think uh, you throw in the 11 postseason home runs, uh, which... Ironically, he's the exact same that Veritek had in his career in the postseason. Ford is sitting at 31, and that's an interesting one. Someday I'm going to get someone to set me straight on Whitey Ford and how to accurately evaluate him and his performance. There's a part of me that feels like he rides the coattails of basically being on the, the greatest baseball team of all time. But he was also very good. It just helps to have, you know, Mantle and Maris and all of them hitting on your team. So I don't know what to make on Whitey Ford. Someday someone's going to set me right on how to properly evaluate him. But I'm going for now put Posada above Ford. I'll put uh, then we got Ryan Braun at 30. And I'm going to put him above Ryan Braun. Because in my opinion, if you go back and listen to the episode he did on Ryan Braun, it's hard to not view everything he did then as a tainted legacy. So I, I knocked him down a little bit for that. He's already that high because he was so good and because he won an MVP. But I think, I th- think I'm think i going to put Posada above, above Braun here. So then it really boils down to Sean Green. Do I put him above or below Sean Green? And looking at Green's sort of career numbers, Green has 328 home runs, so it's got a, a beat there, but not by as much. It's got a more stolen bases uh, with 162, but then if you come down here, their numbers are very similar. Green had a, a you know career 850 OPS, whereas Posada was right around there as well. I think so. I'm torn because I want to put him up above Green, Green offensively. He hit two eighty three for his fifteen year. Posada hit two seventy three, so he's got to beat there. All those stolen bases and the home run boost matter. The only trade off I'll say that throw me off a little bit is just that Green was a, was also a terrible defender, and it's hard to ding Posada versus Green uh, Posada's defense when Green was also terrible at defense. But I think looking at it, I think this is the right spot. So I think what we're gonna do here is, I think Jorge Posada. I don't want to... I'm not going to put him up above Evan Longoria. I, I don't think that's right. So I think I'm going to put him right here between Sean Green and and Ryan Braun. So that will make him our new number 30. Awesome. Fantastic. So that is our episode we talked about. Jason Fair attack in the 2004 season to remember. The brawl that kicked it all off. And just what he meant to Boston and Boston fans. And we talked about sort of his nemesis. his The yin to his yang. The light to his dark. The whatever sort of opposites you want to use in Jorge Posada for the Yankees. Uh, Just a fun way to look at two players' careers who were both peers and competitors against each other, whose careers spanned almost the exact same time and went about things in slightly different ways. This was really fun. I enjoyed talking about these two guys. And, again, thank you for your patience. Welcome to Season 2 of Long Ball Legacies. I'm really excited to have you all here and to have you all join me here as we continue to talk about baseball. I'm hoping to have some fun stuff lined up for us coming up soon. We're going to get into some big names, like I said, and really kick things off. As always, you can make requests if you want a player to have a specifically talk about or if there's any feedback or if you want to argue with me. You can always reach the podcast and myself on Twitter using the at LB Legacies name. And you can also just shoot us an email over at LongBellLegacies at gmail.com. And I'll try to get back to you ASAP. Um, Hit us up with those requests or any feedback you may have. So thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. And we'll see you in uh, two
0: weeks.